We're going to be in Ephesians again today. And our situation is that we've been building on, we're going to build on the train of thought that Moy preached on last week in the first part of chapter 2. God in his magnificent grace, he was moved with compassion to save sinners. It was his action, it was his compassion, he saved us. Uh, But we know that the letter doesn't end there, right? It goes on. And so the complication today is putting our salvation into context. Not only does the Apostle Paul want us to understand how precious salvation is, um, he also wants us to understand where it ultimately leads. And so the implication then is that God has a purpose in our salvation. And it isn't limited, certainly includes, but it is not limited to our forgiveness, right? The sin debt that we have being atoned, it isn't limited to the fact that we avoid hell. And so my, my position, right, having spent some time with the passage, is that by reconciling sinners to himself, uh, Christ is fashioning us for something at the end of time right, that we, we can scarcely fathom right now. And so I'd ask you to look at Paul's teaching with me this morning, uh, which was just read. And if you're a Christian, just ask yourself, am I living my life with the end in mind? Right, or to, said differently, are we all in the boat rowing the same direction, right, towards the same goal? And if you are, uh, the benefit is, it's so rich. And I think you'll recognize the joy that's just beneath the surface at the end of this passage. And so we're going to look at uh, God's purpose here, right, God's purpose in our salvation in three different parts. We're going to start with remembering where it is we started We'll look at the work of reconciliation itself. And then we want to know, we want to look at, well, what is the end game? Okay, so where is it that we started? Let's look at the work of Christ's reconciliation itself. And then where is it headed, right? What's the end game? And so we'll start uh, with the first part, remembering where it is that we began. And that's in verses 11 to 13, if you want to uh, follow with me. I guess I'll go ahead and read those. But therefore remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision, which is made in the, hand, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And so you'll notice the first thing in that passage, Paul begins with a therefore. And so he's pointing back to everything that's in the beginning of chapter 2 in light of the grace that God has given us by faith. He wants us to focus on the fact, Paul does, that that we're Gentiles. And he isn't taking issue with the fact that there was a little bit of name-calling going on. right? When he refers to being called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, uh, those were Jewish folks saying, you're not a Jew. And so it Paul isn't saying, hey, that's rude or that's unkind or anything of the sort. He's saying, you know what? They're, they're right. You are not circumcised. You are not a Jew. And he wants us to understand, what does that mean? And so in verse 12, he says, you need to remember what this means. He actually uses that term in both 11 and in verse 12. He tells us twice, remember what it means to be a Gentile. Uh, Gentiles were born outside of the covenant right, that God had with Israel. So Jews were the citizens Gentiles were foreigners outside of that relationship. 
So for, you, know, you say, okay, why does that matter? Who cares? Uh, Jews were given very precious promises. So for instance, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, towards the end of Moses' life, the Lord lays out a covenant and he offers them the potential, right, the, the blessing of a life, both individually and national, lived under his kingship. Beautiful blessings. They would dwell at peace in the land. And that promise that was made available to them, right, that covenant was only for them. It didn't include folks like you and me. On the other hand, right, these Gentiles we, we would have had, they would have had no hope. And so if we let that sink in just for a little bit, you know, what would that mean? Living a hopeless life. Maybe you find a spouse, maybe you raise kids, maybe you have a livelihood, maybe you have friends, and then you die, separated and apart from God, hopeless. Right, that's stark. And that, that's best case scenario. That's if life here on earth goes best case. More likely, we know that life is marred. Uh, frustration, pain, injustice, all of those things mixed in. And in a hopeless worldview, in a hopeless paradigm, what are you to make of that kind of thing? Right? There, there is no point to suffering. There is nothing to be gained from it. Uh, as believers, we rightly go to passages today, like Romans 8, that says, um, you know, God is at work. He works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that notion of God working all things to the good, it's got those two conditions. It's those who love him and those who are called. Well, this, that calling wouldn't have applied to you, right? So when you go through harshness, when you go through pain, when you go through suffering, that's all you get. You would have had no handle, no lens, no framework to say, is anything good going to come out of this? So you live that kind of life, and then you die separated from God. That's the point in verse 12. That's the language that Paul is using intentionally here, that a life as a Gentile outside of the covenant was without hope and without God in the world. Are you guys hearing a little bit of an echo? Yeah, maybe we can work on that. So it's bleak, right? Our reality, the Gentile reality outside of God's promise is bleak. And then comes this precious turn. Paul switches gears and he says, but now in Christ Jesus. You guys tweaking? There we go. Okay. Um, he's echoing the point that's made in verse four and Moy focused on this rightly so last week. God took the initiative, but God but God. And that's the same way to read verse 13. We who are far away from God have been brought near, right? It's his work, it's his action, his providence and some, you know, his things go haywire. Um, but the point being that our salvation, the first part of chapter two, the second part of chapter two here, it's entirely his work, right? So we were outside of the promise, but God is the one that brought us near, that's why Paul doesn't say anything like, but you finally found God, but someone else brought us to him, right? He brought us to himself. And so Paul wants us to understand we started hopeless, and now we're hope-filled. Right? And that's all because God chose to bring us near. And the Lord did this because he loves us, right? It's in his nature, it's in his own impulse to be compassionate, to give grace to sinners. It's all, it's all because of him.
Um, I may date myself a little bit with this, this example, but if any of you grew up with early Christian music, there's a guy named Steve is Curtis, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Um, still singing? Right. Oh, some of you guys are still not. Yeah, all right. Um, I'm not alone in this. Uh, he has one of my favorites of his song is, is Remember Your Chains, if you're familiar with that one. And he talks about the, the inspiration of that st- uh, song. He got on a plane in Seattle to fly back to Nashville. And as he was getting on the plane, he noticed uh, a prisoner who was handcuffed and also had chains on his ankles, shuffling, being led by a warden or security officer of some sort. Gets in the plane, he's got a window seat, and that's a long flight. And he stares out the window for something like six hours, four, five, six hours, whatever it takes. Never made eye contact, never moved around, uh, just forlorn. And that was the inspiration for the song is, you know, we don't know this guy's circumstance, but he lost something. What freedom or what life he might have had is gone and he is shackled, hopeless. And that, that song, right, remember the chains, remember where you would have been, right, if he hadn't been freed, right, if grace hadn't come. And he goes on in that song, but remember that the chains are gone now. And so that to me is a, um, it's a helpful fit. It's a helpful way to think about the point that Paul is making here. Right? We weren't born, none of us in this room were born in that time frame, but you know, I can see the tendencies in myself. I can speculate what kind of person I would be apart from Christ. Right? Remember where you would be without him. We have to understand some of the hopelessness there to then tee up this work of reconciliation, okay? Remember where you were. That's point one. Point two, let's look at the, the act of reconciliation itself. And this is the how, right? I say we went from hopeless to hope-filled. This is the how. This is what reconciliation does, right? To move us from where we started to where we are. And so Paul makes the critical point here in verse 14, that Jesus is our peace. He himself. Jesus himself is our peace. And so we don't receive peace as if it's stored in a treasury just to be handed out, like money or food. It's not a substance. It's not a quality. It's not necessarily just a state of mind. Fundamentally, peace is a person. Peace is Christ himself. And the Greek word here, irene, right, that Paul uses for peace, I find this really interesting. It's the same word that Luke wrote down when he quoted the angels in the first Christmas. So if you remember Christ is born, the angels show up and they start singing. And you remember their words, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Right? Peace just came down. It is on, or he is on earth. Right? Peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. And so in the, in, in the incarnation, right, in the act of Jesus taking on flesh, coming down to earth, he begins this work of reconciliation in his life. Right? If you look at the rest of the language in verses 14 and 15, Christ has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down or destroyed, depending on your translation. Uh, he's broken down or destroyed in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's a lot of truth packed into that phrase, so let's look at certain pieces of it. Uh, The reference to breaking down or destroying, uh, I think the best way to understand that concept is annulment. 
And dividing wall is probably alluding to a physical structure. Right? So in the Jewish temple, you had the court, you had the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the Jewish court, the court of the Gentiles, sort of this concentric sphere concept, things radiating out. And so there was a physical barrier. And if you were a Gentile or you were a woman, that's where you stopped. That's what the barrier was for. It was only the Jewish men that could continue on. And then from them, right, only the high priest that obviously made it into the Holy of Holies once a year. Uh, so this dividing wall, it's, it's physical, but it certainly symbolizes much more than that. Right? That, that design is important because God is telling everyone, starting with the Jewish folks, something of himself, that he is holy, that he's not to be approached lightly, that to be approached at all is to do so on his terms and that there is no other way to do it. And so that's where sacrifices flow from, right? That's the heart of the sacrificial system is that when you transgress God's law, which he gave, right? Here's the way in which we're gonna relate. Well, there had to be righteous wrath and judgment for the transgressing of God's law. And so you had things like the shedding of blood of animals to appease for a time, as it were, the wrath of God in light of someone breaking his law. And so God very intentionally expresses something of himself with the temple. Not everyone can come, only the chosen. And if you break that law, there are sacrifices to be had. And that's within his covenant people. So if you're on the outside of that as a Gentile and you do something to profane God's law, you're going to create hostility not only with God, but with Jews as well, transgressing the very thing that they care about. As a matter of fact, in Acts 17, Paul was accused by the Jews of bringing a Gentile too far right, into the courts. They took it very, very seriously. And so the, the key to take out of this to understand is that God himself creates the law to reveal something of himself, righteousness, holiness. This is the way it's going to work. We couldn't live up to it. And so righteous wrath, righteous hostility emerges as a consequence of transgressing God's law. So the law was the source of hostility between God and man and also between groups of men, Jew and Gentile. Right? The Romans, for instance, didn't care about the temple. Right? A lot of hostility as a result. Okay. Jesus did away with that hostility. And this is, it's, it's important to understand the how and the why, right? It's, it's critically important to understand this. So Paul says clearly that Jesus accomplished this peace in his flesh. And so you start to wonder, well, what does that mean? How did he do it in his flesh? Well, we already said that he was born. He took on flesh. He had the incarnation. And so we have 33 years of perfect obedience to God the Father, Right, fulfilling to the smallest detail every command, every teaching that came through the law. And theologians will refer to this as the active obedience of Christ. Everything he said, every action, every conversation, every thought, taking it captive to the obedience of God, he actively obeyed. He also submitted himself, as we know, to God's judgment of sin on our behalf. He did it through crucifixion and death, and he didn't deserve those things, but he absorbed the fullness of God's righteous wrath against your sin, my sin, 
right? The sin of all the redeemed. And theologians refer to this as his passive obedience, passively accepting the penalty of God for everyone else's sin. And I'm speculating a little bit here, but because Jesus died for many, the penalty that he absorbed, probably exponentially worse than what any one sinner might suffer for his or her own sin. And exponentially worse. Even if that's not true, right, that's my, my speculation, Jesus voluntarily received God's penalty for sin after having fully obeyed the law. And so he has active obedience to the law, passive obedience to its fulfillment. That's why it's annulled. And it's completely set aside and satisfied in every respect. Its call and its penalty both satisfied, therefore annulled. That's what reconciliation means. That's why it's set aside. That's why the law has no direct authority over believers in Christ today, because it's been fulfilled, in a sense, annulled. And this, this is what Paul is referring to when he says he removed this dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. It's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, right? It's what he did, it's who he is. That's why he is our peace. Does that make sense? So this has the effect, what Jesus did on the cross, of creating one new humanity out of two, right? Formerly Jew and Gentile. That distinction isn't relevant anymore when it comes to this question of who has peace with God. And so when Christ reconciled both to himself, if you look at verse 15, it says Jesus created one new man in place of the two. In fact, some of the early church uh, fathers, early church believers used to refer to us Christians as the third race. You had Jew, you had Gentile, and you have this new thing that Jesus created in a believing, redeemed Christian, third race. And just in case you're thinking, that seems a little bit much, Adam, <laughs> that there, there's a third race. Uh, if you look at the word create, if you do the word study on uh, what the Greek word here is, is for create, it's the same term that's used uh, for God's act of creation. So not just the physical world, it also refers to the creation of powers and principalities, angels and demons, it has to do with the, the creation of material world. It has to do with us. Point being, that level, that nature, that kind of creation, it is way beyond our ability to create. Right? So when Jesus reconciled sinful man to himself and created something new, it's on the same level, maybe even further, as creation itself. It's been said before, right? We have this English word of atonement and it conveys the same idea of reconciliation. Right? Through the payment of sin, sinners, you and me, we are made at one, atone. At one with Christ and therefore almighty God. And that's why Paul says, verse 18, that through him, both of us, Jews and Gentiles, we obtain access to the Father by one spirit. This has obvious implications for our relationships with each other. Since Christ himself is 
our peace for the believer, then there's just no basis at all anymore for hostility between believers. Many of the commentaries that I've read, they all rightly point out that the gospel has healed this racial tension that existed between Jew and Gentile over the law and what it meant to be in the commonwealth of God that's been solved. That same uh, solution, that same reconciliation is what has achieved, past tense, has achieved racial reconciliation within the church because there's just no basis to have hostility with each other when that hostility has been solved between us and the Lord. And so we need to understand, this is important. I do think some folks well-intentioned have this wrong. The work of reconciliation is complete. You, You and I don't go out and create it as if it doesn't exist today. That's what Christ did in the work of reconciliation himself. And so our call here is to grow in that finished work, right? To enjoy it, to participate in it, to let it change the way that we think and act in our relationships with each other. But we don't go out and earn it and accomplish it and achieve it as if it hasn't been achieved already. It's the same principle, right? That we often say that we love and serve God because he saved us. We don't love and serve God for him to save us. The order is really, really important. Same thing here. Reconciliation has been achieved. And it's up to us to take it, right? To run with it, to live in it with each other. Last thing on reconciliation. Don't overlook the fact that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in this. I think this is verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus, we, Jew and Gentiles, both have access in one spirit, capital S, to the Father. All three persons of the Trinity, Jews and Gentiles, everyone, one short sentence, Paul sums up the gospel. Next time you put something on Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter in like, you know, 47 characters or whatever it is, this is your benchmark. Right? So much truth captured in the fact that Christ himself is our peace, that we are bound to him through the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that, we have access to the Father. And when we come into the Father's throne room, if you bear in mind where the temple started, we come in there facing God Almighty with his holy hostility, having been satisfied. And so you enter into this crazy peace that just wasn't available that we had no part in historically. And yet it's given to us because of Jesus' perfect obedience, because of his submission to God's penalty to reconcile, to settle the scores, and to bring us in to the throne room of God to enjoy his peace because we're arm in arm with our peace. So work of reconciliation in the flesh, that's point number two. The third point, where is it all headed, right? What is Jesus doing ultimately through this act of reconciliation, bringing us to himself? There is a purpose, so let's look at it. And Paul starts with a little bit of repetition, right? This reconciliation that we have as believers in Jesus, it conveys citizenship in God's kingdom, right? We, We were previously foreigners, now we have citizenship. And then more than that, we get adoption into his household, family status, Sons and daughters. 
Uh, to illustrate this point, it's not, not my illustration, but Tim Keller talks about the, uses this picture. If you think of a king at night in his bed, sleeping in the palace, and uh, he's got a little girl, six or seven, who's thirsty, and she gets out of bed again. Right. Have you guys had this? Kids that won't stay in bed. Goes into the king's room, pushes the door open. Daddy, I'm thirsty. And the king says, sure, hon, let's go get some water. Right? If you're a servant in the house and you're thirsty, there's probably a better way to get water than to push into the king's bedroom and demand that he serve you. If you're a peasant or a serf out in the kingdom, right, that's a good way to die. This little girl goes into her dad's room and his hostility, just as it's the furthest thing from her mind, she knows that he's the one with the authority and the ability to satisfy. Right? To go in with peace and with trust, just implicit, right? It just doesn't even register. There's just no question that my king will have me now. That's what it means to be sons and daughters, not just citizen. And our security as kids, right, where we have this trust, implicit, childlike trust in our king, that depends on Christ, right? That's why we have it. Paul goes on to use another metaphor. He's got half a dozen of them in these last few verses. He characterizes Jesus as our cornerstone, and you might be familiar with this concept, but the idea is that when you go to build a building, you put the cornerstone just so where it begins, that by doing that, that you have established the contours and the shape of the rest of the building. Sure, there's more to come, it's going to grow, but it's going to grow in line with the contours that you have established by setting the cornerstone where it goes. That's then the Concept, Jesus is the cornerstone. You bring in prophets and teachers and apostles and they build and the message grows. The church rises up all according to the cornerstone. But none of those teachers, none of those apostles do anything other than proclaim Christ, serve Christ, point to him as the peace. None of them would say, hey, guess what? I'm your peace. It all rests on him. Paul continues with these uh, metaphors here in verses 19, 20, and 21, right? We're citizens, we're family. There's this picture of a building or this structure that's coming together by virtue of the cornerstone. Uh, then it shifts into something called a holy temple. And then in verse 22, the church is pictured as being in him, being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives. And I think that's a really interesting one. That verse kind of bookended with, we're in him, but he dwells in us. That's kind of a weird thing, right? We're both inside the other. Uh, illustration that's helpful here, if you put a thimble in the ocean, the water's in the thimble, the thimble's in the water. Right? There's this beautiful filling and mixture, one certainly much deeper than the other. The point here is that God and man dwell together. A lot of different images of what it means to come into the kingdom and the family of God, be part of his temple, to be filled with him and in him as he is in us. We dwell together. In the sense of verse 21, it's, it's not just static. 
So if you look at your uh, translation, depending on what you have, you may see the phrase that this structure is being joined or it is rising or it is growing. It's this ongoing dynamic notion that coming into God's design, into his fellowship, it's moving, right? It's on a trajectory somewhere. And we're being fashioned into this final dwelling place. And so what is that in game? I think it's in Revelation 21, and we'll go read a text there in just a moment. Uh, the Apostle John gives us a glimpse, right, in this same future that Paul's touching on. Uh, but before I read that one, I, I need to point out, right, to be fair to the text, why do I think that Paul has the same thing in mind that John does in the end of Revelation? And I think you get that in this uh, Chapter verses, let's see, chapter two, verses six and seven, where Paul says that we have been seated in heavenly realms with Christ, so that in the coming ages, fast forward, future tense, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace to us. Right? His grace in us and on us is going to be somehow displayed in the future. And here's a question that I don't know that we have the answer to Who, who's watching? That you and I are there to make God look good, right? Redeemed, full of grace, full of hope, with the purpose of displaying his grace in the coming ages. So that display, that coming age, that dwelling together, we get a, a little bit more of a complete picture now. So if you want to turn with me to Revelation 21, I'm going to start in verse 22. So this is chapter 21, and I'll read four or five verses here, beginning in verse 22. And so this is John recording his vision, and he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We could have a sermon just on this passage, right? But the first thing I want you to notice at the beginning of it, what does he say? And I saw what? No temple. No temple. Why is that? Why is that? Right? God himself and the Lamb is the temple, right? And it says there's a city. Well, to have a city, you need people. Right? And we know at the end of this passage when it says, well, who are those people? Well, we've got a record. Maybe you go to the courthouse. Right? You have the Lamb's Book of Life with names written on it. And so you have this final dwelling place. God in us, us in him, dwelling together. No more temple where only the priest gets to go, but all of us enjoying the radiance of God's glory to the point we don't need the sun because he just illuminates everything. Scripture says that there's no night, there's no darkness, right? The gates are open, which means there's no reason 
to shut them, to be insecure, to need protection, right? The old order of things has gone and has passed. It ought to swell, right, in our hearts. Uh, we ought to, to yearn for that day, right? To long for his return. So I want to uh, share one more quote with you. Uh, this is from a book I'm reading, uh, John Piper, on the second coming and what it, uh, what it means to long for the appearing of Christ, right? We, we can have questions about the day or the time or how it's going to work, but what does it mean to long for our Redeemer to come back? So this is his quote. The aim of the book is to help you love the second coming of Jesus Christ. The contents in the title were inspired partly by the biblical prayers of come, Lord Jesus, in Revelation 22, and our Lord come in 1 Corinthians 16. But mainly the book was inspired by the heart affection that's beneath these prayers, which Paul expresses in 2 Timothy. And this is 2 Timothy 4.8. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A crown of righteousness is promised to those who love the second coming of Christ. And we pray for his appearing because we love his appearing. The prayer, come Lord Jesus, is rooted in something deeper, which is, I love your appearing. That's the end of the quote. But as we look forward to the return of Christ, which is going to lead to this dwelling place that we're being fashioned for now, Right? That's what we love. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. And the affection for Christ that we're talking about here, it runs through this passage from beginning to end as we've studied it today. And our love for Jesus is strengthened when we think about what would a life apart from him be like? And some of you know, some of you lived an adult life apart from Jesus. You know what it's like to be separated from him. Our love for Jesus is strengthened when we think about what he did to reconcile sinners to himself with 33 years of perfect obedience and then suffering something gruesome and awful to satisfy and appease the wrath of God, satisfying in himself, reconciling in his own flesh all of the hostility that we would have peace with the Lord. And our love grows for him even more when we understand that he is fashioning us. This is the current. This is the now. This is why we're here, to lean into his word and to grow together, right? To have the life of Christ through the spirit more manifest in this body, understanding it's on a trajectory for what a final dwelling place is going to look like. That's the essence of what it means for Christ to be our peace, as we think about the purpose that God has for us in salvation, right, where it's going. He is our peace. Christ is our peace with the Father and with each other. So may we be nourished, right? may we be satisfied, may our heart and our mind and our behavior conform to that hope, right, to that movement and that path as we approach the end game, right, of what a beautiful final dwelling is coming. So let's pray. Father, we, we marvel at your plans. Lord, your word says in Psalms that your greatness is unsearchable. 
And so we confess, Lord, that we don't know the fullness of your plan, but what you share with us and what you reveal and what you've given us in scripture, Lord, we rejoice in. And we praise you, Lord, for sending your son to save us, to reconcile us to him, to give us grace, to make us sons and daughters, and to give us this promise that we are going to be brought into this final dwelling place where there's no longer any sort of separation or distance. And that day, Lord, our faith will be made sight. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the beauty and the strength of that truth. And we pray with Paul, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in Jesus' name, amen.